Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And we are excited to announce that today we've managed to land a very special guest. You may know him as the man who brought us the novelization of Revenge of the Sith, as well as many other books in the Star Wars universe. Not to mention, he's also the man responsible for bringing us the Acts of Cain, which we covered way earlier on this very podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we're extending a warm welcome to Matthew Woodring Stover to Inking Out Loud. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. It's very much my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. He's joining us today to talk about a book that many of our listeners have been waiting for us to cover now. For episode 135 of Inking Out Loud, we're finally diving into The Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch. And even with all of the hype, gentlemen, I genuinely was not prepared for how glorious this book was. It's my first time reading, and I'm excited to hear Drew cover what happened here. So, Drew, would you kindly give us our weekly recap? What happened in The Lies of Locke Lamora? Yeah, I'm going to keep this one pretty short, but... The Lies of Locke Lamora follows the thieving crew known as the Gentleman Bastards, led by the titular character, spinning flashbacks to their childhood and their greatest heist yet as adults. It's basically Oliver Twist meets Ocean's Eleven in Fantasy Venice. As Locke, Jean, the Sansas, and Bug set in motion their plan to relieve Don Salvara of half his considerable fortune, they get embroiled in the vendetta of the Grey King, who is waging war against Kappa Barsavi, the leader of the Komori Underground. The Grey King sets up Locke for an untimely death at the hands of Barsavi, but Jean saves him. Unfortunately, they can't save the Sansas or Bug, nor can they stop the Grey King and his twin sisters from slaughtering Barsavi's entire family, including life, Locke's lifelong friend, Nazca. Locke and Jean wade into the fray, preventing the Grey King from gentling nearly the entire noble class with Wraithstone. After Jean kills the Barangia's sisters, they must first confront the Falconer, whom they maim, and then it's up to Locke to take on the Grey King himself. Using an old misdirection gambit from their childhood, Locke manages to kill the Grey King, but takes many wounds in the process. As the remains of the gentleman bastard's fortune burns and sinks into Camor Bay, Locke and Jean sail off to begin a new stage of their lives. That was very succinct. <laughs> nice. Nicely done. Covers it pretty well. Yeah, he's actually good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, writing a synopsis of another book is way easier than writing a synopsis of your own book. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can definitely imagine. I guarantee that. Yeah, <laughs> jumping straight into style here as we normally do. I want to start off by saying Lynch is such an incredible writer, and I'm I'm really glad that I put off reading Scott Lynch until now, because I don't think I could have appreciated this book when I was in high school properly in the way that it deserves. I don't know if I could have properly appreciated this book just a couple of years ago. How about you guys? Yeah, I I love the way he uses point of view in this book. That's the biggest thing that stands out to me. It's easy to think of this book as a, a third person limited narrator, but it's really um, an omniscient narrator. And, and that throws me for a loop every time I reread it. I'm like, oh yeah, this is different from what I'm expecting. And it allows him to do some really neat things with um, kind of dramatic irony with characters and and uh, building his humor because the guy's hilarious. Oh, he's amazing. Matt, how was your first time reading this book? Well, I actually read some of it uh, before it was a book. When it no kidding. was uh, excerpts on Scott's blog oh. uh, many years ago. Uh, oh. We were, uh, how I know Scott 
is we were uh, members of a message board back in the old uh, pre-Facebook days of the internet. And uh, uh, I was uh, constantly impressed by how he was able to um, get into arguments on this, uh, on this message board and say all of the things that I would have said if I were smarter than a writer. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that is literally, and, and anyone who, anyone from those days will attest that that was my exact phrase. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I think he, I think he's tremendous. I think the book is tremendous. I read, uh, uh, I think it was my, my favorite scene actually in the book is, uh, Jean in the elder glass garden. Yes. And I read that um, back in those days and and I just wrote to him. I said, dude, you know, you're a genius. This is brilliant. There's something here. This, For sure. uh, this is this is the coolest thing I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. Mad but, Woodering Stover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> feel good. High praise. That's gotta be from uh, on on Lich's part there. Like I, I was in here, I mean I had both the audiobook and the text to read and to listen to. I got both, and I do not regret it. The, the like, the setting is incredible. the The exposition is intricate. The cursing. Cool. There's that that first line that we got near the, to the beginning with about Child Locke having larceny in his heart. Sure as the sea is full of fish piss. Like, I don't know if I've rightly laughed out loud so early on in the beginning of a book here. Mm -hmm. It was just, he's, a, he's so wonderful. Yeah, I, I love the sense of humor. And, and he works in different kind of styles of humor. Uh, yeah, you've got the, the really over-the-top, um, flowery, colorful language. Uh, but also things as simple as like the, the titles for the crooked warden, the father of necessary pretexts yes. that, that cracks me up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And I would say that, that, uh, one of Scott's great virtues as a writer is how he is able to create, uh, uh incredible heartbreaking drama and also make you make sure that you continue to have fun yeah. for the for yeah. the I mean even even the even the horrible stuff that happens in the book um, there's the the uh, narrative is uh, so well paced that you don't you don't really it, it never it never bogs down in the heartbreak let me put it that way um, there's mm -hmm. always more fun yeah. to be had yeah, yeah. Like I was thinking about the, you know, the scene, the infamous scene where Locke gets nearly drowned in the the barrel of horse piss. Uh, you know, one of the most horrific things I've I've read in in a lot of series. Uh, and and he gets saved. And in the immediate aftermath, they're fighting these horrific spider monsters, but they're cracking jokes. You know, he makes it fun in the midst of the horror. I think that's a, a like a kind of he he like leavens it yeah um yeah, yeah. i agree um yeah, it, it's yeah. almost like it's almost like he captures you'll you'll forgive me uh for uh bringing in an entirely different uh franchise to this uh oh. discussion well, that's what we do but he yeah. kind of he he uh there's almost a a pre-capture of uh the sort of the marvel mm. formula there 
you you might um, okay. I mean Iron Man came out three years after the lives of Locke Lamora, but there is there is I think that's one of the reasons for the success of the franchise is that they always focus on bringing you fun, uh, no yeah. matter how dark the story is, and that's that I think uh, uh, dark but consistently fun is a good way of describing Scott's work in general. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good way to describe the acts of Cain as well. Oh well, thanks <laughs> for sure. I, I, I don't. Uh, I I uh, feel in when I look at my own work, I think of I think of it more as I think of the fun more as the adrenaline. Yeah, that mm. uh, is produced by um, you know acts of brutal violence, and uh, I, I don't yeah, think sure. of my, I, I don't I'm not as funny as Scott is. Let me just put it that way. Um, I, I, I would love that. to be. But, uh, <laughs> the shit's lip deep and the tide's rolling in. I read that just last night. <laughs> it was so good, man. It's so good. But yeah, yeah, yeah. no, like spectacle definitely is, is a large driving factor, even behind a lot of these darker scenes. And what I what I really noticed about that was the physical, visceral reaction I was getting to reading, for example, this scene uh, with with Capa uh, Barsavi and that Federico guy who with, oh. with the. The, the glass shards in the sack oh, you know? and yeah. I was just I, I found myself physically cringing during that scene I was actually mm -hmm. butting my knuckles going oh my god this is so brutal but this harkens back to something that my 12th grade English teacher had told me or had told the entire class at one point he had said the some of the best writers are the ones who can elicit that physical reaction if a writer can even make you blink with something that you see on the page that is an effective talented writer and that i can i see 100 percent of that in scott lynch it is he's, he seems to do it with this effortless style and it's really it, it's really inspiring as a as a hopeful writer myself i would suggest that now i don't i don't actually i'm not that familiar with with scott's uh actual creative process but i will suggest that I strongly suspect, let me put it this way, strongly suspect that um, that uh, feeling of effortlessness and ease that you that you get from from reading his prose is the product of um, a huge amount of work, just a <laughs> yeah. huge amount of skull sweat. There is a lot there is a lot of crafting and polishing that goes into prose of that quality, in my opinion. Um, now, like I said, I'm not that familiar with the details of his process, but I suspect, uh, also based on, you know, the, uh, what you might call the pace of his, of his output, I suspect that he hmm. really works every scene. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot it reads of sense. Like it. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. I, I like the way you put that, Rob, you know, that there's this effortlessness to it, but it's, it's more than just that. Like there's like a casual elegance. He, he has plenty of time to write these long, beautiful passages describing Camor, describing the environments around the people. And in, in that way, there's an almost, you know, Tolkien esque flavor to it, but it's not as, um, Oh, like it, it doesn't have the the formality, the feel of formality that Tolkien does, because it's surrounded with uh, friendly, engaging characters, uh, funny people cracking jokes. It it makes this really interesting blend of a style. 
Mm. And a fast-paced narrative. Yeah, yeah, they're, very fast-paced they're, narrative. They're, yeah. I, now, again, I, I haven't uh, actually reread the book recently, as I mentioned in our uh, earlier yeah. messaging back and forth. But uh, my recollection is that um, the very detailed the very detailed descriptions are always in service of the story. They're always moving the story forward. He's not just telling you um, what things look like, but he's telling you, um, I don't know how to describe it, how, how it's going to work and what the, like what the environment is going to mean for the scene that, that he is unfolding. Yeah, yeah, it it informs the plot. Mm -hmm. uh, it, each time, you know, he he doesn't just sit there and and describe the entire city at the very beginning of the book. He describes each of these islands as they are becoming relevant, mm -hmm. and oftentimes the description of the island is going to mimic the tone of a coming scene. Like mm -hmm. uh, early on, the one that really struck me is when Locke is going to pay his taxes uh, to Kappa Barsavi, and we see him, you know, he's, he's going down the canals and the one Island he really describes is the cauldron. And it's the bleakest, dreariest, the most downtrodden people. And then we get to uh, the, the graveyard and, and he meets with Kappa Barsavi and we see Kappa Barsavi has become a broken man, downtrodden, losing himself in wine, uh, m brutally killing those closest to him. He he's just, completely falling apart the way the cauldron was just described as this once beautiful part of Kamor that is breaking apart. You know, I hadn't even noticed that. <laughs> oh, wow. I think that's a good observation. Good observation. Yeah. Yeah. This is and, why and he does it all throughout the book with mm -hmm. where he, he finds moments to describe the city or elements of the city in a way that reflects the scene he's about to go into. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, that was, there's... that was the thing that, that knocked me out about the elder glass garden <clears throat> with um, the way, you know, when the, when the rose, the petals cut you, the, the, uh, your blood colors, the glass. It, yeah. yeah. It, it was just also, I, I'm, I'm not too shy to admit that Jean is my favorite character. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's 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 the oh, one I like the best. He's I just think he's the coolest. I mean, Locke is great. Locke is is you know, he's Butch Cassidy to Jean's Sundance Kid, right? He's sure he's sure, the okay, brain, okay. he's the schemer, he's the charming, affable one. But Jean is Jean is just cool. I really yeah. Like him. <laughs> oh yeah. And well, I, I yeah. love seeing that transformation of yeah. Well, in and it's almost like a reverse transformation because we first meet Jean as an adult and it's not till well into the book that we get the flashback of Jean as this doughy, you know, pudgy, shy, uh, kid. And then we start seeing him transform and turn into the, the badass that right. we got at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. 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 There were a few moments as well when Lynch managed to subvert my expectations in a way that I found really, really pleasing yanking that proverbial rug out from under my feet with the uh, the introduction talking about Nazca. This is a great example of this. We meet Nazca and we, or at least I, immediately assume, okay, this is going to be perhaps a romantic interest of some sort. And then we see Kappa Barsavi himself, like, you know, condoning it, arranging it in his way. But then just right away, we, we cut to Locke and Nazca 
discussing exactly this and discussing how neither of them wants this and how they're going to actually find a way out of it. Like this went in the opposite direction that I expected and it went there immediately. Like it really did a great job readying the palette too for me since I this made me stop and realize, okay, this isn't that kind of book. Don't mm -hmm. make assumptions, Rob. Just read. <laughs> Just read. Right. And it was uh, hastily done. Very well done. You know, that's that's one of those uh, another one of the ways that this book is fun it's it's a book that encourages you to kind of turn that switch off and just lose yourself in the story yeah. mm -hmm. oh my god yeah like there are some authors i think brilliant authors gene wolf for instance you you want to think about what you're reading while you're reading gene wolf <laughs> while you're reading scott lynch you don't want to think about it you just want to lose yourself in in the roller coaster you know I, I would agree. I would agree to some extent. I would also say that that uh, uh, Scott, uh, again, just to my reading, um, mm -hmm. my uh, reading of his books, that he often has uh, he has a deeper point that that underlies his narratives. They're not intended entirely for entertainment. Sure. In my opinion, yeah. um, that that uh, one of the things I think he's he's particularly good at. One of the things I admire about him is that he leaves you with something to think about after you finish the book. Mm -hmm. um, also, I think that there's a how would I put this? There's a there is an an ability to uh, to engage your imagination and make you think about the th make me anyway think about the things that i do not see on the page hmm and interesting that's that's one of the things that i find that i find interesting in the book is there is the the feeling of um dipping into someone's life at intervals but that there is a there is a there's a whole life there we're just yeah. we're only seeing these little snapshots of it, but but it feels like, and that this again is a hallmark of quality writing. It feels like that they have lives beyond the page. Oh, certainly, uh, and and I think that even extends um, to the way he builds his world. Uh, one of my favorite things about the series is how mysterious the history of the world is. Uh, with these artifacts, the the elder glass, mm -hmm. you know, artifacts left all over the place, some of which are inexplicable, and and so there there are holes in the world building that he leaves, but he leaves them purposely for you to wonder about them. Yes, like I, yeah, I, absolutely. I think that makes it super compelling. I, even more so in in the second and third books. There's one passage, especially in the second book, that haunts me okay. because I want so badly to know, and I okay. I know he's never going to explain it. You know, like, <laughs> oh, well, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too sure that he will never explain it. Well, yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> there are there are but several it, books to go in oh. this series. Yeah, we. I think it's supposed to be seven total. I believe that was the original plan. I don't know if the plan yeah. has changed in the interim or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for myself coming out of this book, all I can think of is how much I need to dive into the next book now and the next <laughs> book after that, because I have just read at this point the first book. And all of these things that I'm wondering, I'm not sure if they're going to be addressed in the second or third or fourth, so on. Some of them. I'm, I'm, 
Yeah. Well, Rob, we, we got to finish Dresden Files before we get there. I know. We have so much <laughs> on our plate. Oh. <laughs> we've, we've got about 12 more Dresden books to go. Oh, yeah. yeah I've, I've read 20 of them, I think. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so many. And there's like <laughs> short story collections, and I don't know if I'm we're going to cover I'm those. I've read the short stuff, but I, I've, read, yeah. I've read about 20 of the books. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, 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 that shit's just fun. Yes. You know, I, yeah. I don't care who you are. That's a fun book. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We um, just finished Blood Rites, and I was all over the place <laughs> loving that book. Yeah, I wasn't as big a fan of Blood Rites, but I, I have enjoyed some of the others in the series. But. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, Lies of Locke Memora. Yeah. Um, uh, so we're we're still kind of talking about the the writing style in this, which doesn't surprise me. We're spending the most time on that. Uh, um, I brought up the omniscient point of view earlier, and I I almost don't even want to call it an omniscient point of view because at times it 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 feels like a a microscope, like he's zooming in and out. He's playing really fast and loose with like. Some chapters, it it for all intents and purposes, is a, a standard limited third person point of view. Uh, but he kind of reserves the right to just be like, "Oh well," but now I'm gonna head, head hop or or you know move out to a, a much higher, broader view. And I, I kind of just love the audacity of that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I would I would call what he uh, what he does. Uh, this is what I, I call this. At least this is what I call it when I do it in my own work is, uh, is the, the uh, close third person writing. And, mm-hmm. and basically it's, it strikes me that what he's doing is making a very deliberate choice of who is going to be the point of view character for each scene and then structuring the scene around what that character sees, thinks, and feels. Right. So it is, it's semi omniscient, but not really because you're, you're only inside one character at a time as a general rule. There are, there are some long shots. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of unavoidable for, uh, uh, for fantasy fiction. You need, and science fiction in general, you need to have, uh, you need to have the establishing shot in order to make the detail work. Um, you know, to, so that you know where the details fit in, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm a film yeah. student. Now we're speaking my language. Heck yeah. In in the main narrative, in in the adult lock narrative, he mostly sticks to that that close third person. Uh, but in some of the flashbacks, I noticed, especially uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book, uh, when young Locke has to explain himself to Father Chains. Uh, uh, there are moments where we get inside both of their heads in the same scene. And, and that jarred me where I was like, wait a second, I could have sworn this was all from Locke's point of view, but it's not, you know, and, and that almost makes it more fun because then you get to see some of father Chains's reactions to this strange little boy, as well as the consternation that Locke has learning this lesson about mm-hmm. um, learning prudence. And it, it's just another way he makes the book more fun. I also yes, I agree. Speaking of narrative strategies, um, Scott, one thing that Scott does really well is uh, uh, after action reports. 
um, like like that scene you were just talking about, where we don't see what Locke did to take care of the the kids that were bothering him, but we yeah. hear about it afterwards in a very yeah. entertaining, fairly high stress sort of way, so that the telling of the event is as suspenseful as the, or probably more suspenseful than the actual event would have been if he depicted it directly. And uh, absolutely, I think that's a clever thing, and it's something I wish I, I wish I could do that well. Yeah, yeah, we heard the yeah. thing from from I think it was from Father Chains when he was describing the history of Kappa Barsavi and how he rose to power and how he dealt with the competing, it's either the competing garistas or the the competing kappas. But yeah. I, I was I read that and I was like, oh my god! Like even starting it off, I knew I was like, this is gonna screw me up, isn't it? This is gonna really <laughs> fuck me up. And then I got to the end and I'm like, yeah, okay, yep, I should have trusted. This is some good stuff. Yeah, I hadn't considered how many um, action set pieces we only hear about after the fact throughout this book, but that is a, a thing. That's really interesting. Well, I think, because I think it's, it's, um, I would guess that it's a conscious narrative strategy and, mm -hmm. uh, and it's, and it's a great one. If you can pull it off, if you have a plot point that needs to happen, but you can't, you, you, it doesn't seem inherently dramatic enough to suit your story. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, Gene Wolfe, who you mentioned earlier is legendary for this. Kind yeah. Of, oh this my kind gosh. Of, yeah. The, the, yeah. Uh, um, recounting, having someone tell oh. the story of what happened, um, you know, after, after at the gate of Nessus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I didn't think of that, but you're definitely right. I mean, Wolf is so notorious for, uh, especially in the book of the new sun, ending a book in the middle of a super tense scene and then starting the next book weeks later, and you only have to, you know, you only get to find out what happened secondhand. Right, when somebody tells somebody else about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's a really funny, really funny connection. Um, uh, but, but yeah, the, the um, kind of removed after action report, I, I like the way you put that where if this, the initial scene isn't dramatic enough, it's like, why, why would I include this? But if you can include the telling of it with a scene that also moves, you know, the plot forward or, or right. develops the character. And the, the actual telling of it itself has stakes. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Like for, for Locke where uh, he, he has to tell it right, or he's going to get killed. Right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that that's fantastic stuff. I even yeah. as many times as I've read this book, I I've probably read this six or seven times now and I hadn't considered that element the the writing element mm. of of it rather rather than the the storytelling, you know, the the fun. Well, <laughs> one of the things that I discovered after I became a professional is that uh, it's very difficult for me to lose myself in a book uh, because I am I am so aware of I, I I see the gears. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like like a, a watchmaker looking at your Rolex. You know, you see the the crystal and the and what time it is, but the watchmaker sees the gears and knows how that all happens. And 
most of the time I can't ignore that. But when it's when you get a, a book like Lies of Locke Lamora, um, where the the gears are, how would I put this? They are they are um, they are beautiful for their own sake, right? You, 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 mm-hmm. I, I can see the mechanics, but the mechanics themselves um, please me aesthetically. Yeah, yeah. It's just, okay. It's like it's like oh, that that's a clever way to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, like when somebody makes a giant sculpture of a gorilla out of like garage scrappings. You know, it's like how do you how how do you see that in all these different pieces here? It's like when somebody uh, switches between first and third person point of view uh, to <laughs> indicate switching worlds or something like that. I wouldn't know anything <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I didn't even pick up on that until Drew had told me about it. I am so I am such a close reader that I don't notice a lot of these view shifts. Ex- until except for the up. one sequence when it's third person on Overworld because <laughs> connection is severed. Mm-hmm. Right, he's not getting recorded. <laughs> yeah, I'm through all of my style points with uh, with with the first book of Lynch's series here. Uh, either of you guys have anything else you want to talk about style oriented, or should we transition into character? Uh, let's talk about characters now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, starting with our, our main character, then our, our titular character, Locke Lamora, you know? Um, and, and I, I find myself agreeing with a lot of what Matt was saying earlier. It's like Locke is a, he's, he's an okay character. I have no complaints about Locke, but he didn't really stand out to me in the, in the same way that a lot of other characters did like Jean Tannen, like Father Chains, like even in Kahlo and Galdo, who I resonated with being a kind of <laughs> jack of all trades myself, but master of none. How did either of you feel about, about Locke? Matt, I'll give you a, give you a first shout here. Well, um, that is one of those, uh, clever bits of narrative mechanics that I really admire about the book. Um, be, the, I think the reason you had that reaction, I, I'm just guessing now, but I, I think and this is a, an informed guess, is that, it's, is that Locke's secrets are central to the plot. That he is, mm-hmm. he is the one character that you're not supposed to know everything about. A very good point right that's a very so, good point yeah. so you you don't you don't get deep into his head you have you you are in as a reader you're almost in the same um situation as the other characters that Locke interacts with is that all you get you get to you watch what he does and you hear what he says and you have to figure out what you know why he's actually doing these things and what he means what his goals and intentions and you know as we find out his even his actual history are all um are all intentionally mysterious so yeah no you nailed it how frustrated were you, Rob, when he told Locke his name, but you didn't actually get to read what no, his no, name no, was? No, 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 <laughs> Matt nailed it right there because my literal only oh. next line here is me saying, "Well, in the next, in the future books here, I, I assume I'm going to get a lot more context for him, and my opinion is going to change because that's absolutely right. We are still finding out a lot about Locke, and I loved it. I was teased by it with that last line there of him telling John Tannen his name, but I had this stupid." goofy grin on my face mm-hmm. even though i was frustrated because i knew how how great of a decision that was on lynch's part to still hold that off and just dangle that in front of us there it was mm-hmm. masterful <laughs> yeah, right. i love it 
And so, and, and so I think that that's, that's why Locke in this book feels somewhat less textured than a lot of the other characters because, because he's, Scott has made a deliberate decision to, um, to make you work to try and figure him out. And, and it's, it even extends to his physical description where Lynch goes out of his way introducing him to describe just how plain right. Locke how is. How nondescript he is. Yeah. 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 There's also the fact that I don't really have a lot in common with, with Locke Lamora, you know, save perhaps maybe 1% of his talent with accents. But uh, the other characters <laughs> were ones, especially Kahlo and Galdo, I was really into. But yeah, yeah that's just how I found Locke. And I'm expecting that I'm going to have, at least be provided many more reasons to, to indulge in this character and enjoy this character in the future. Oh, for sure. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't really think I'll be disappointed either. I mean, <laughs> I, do think, I do think Lies of Locke Lamora is the strongest of the three of the Gentleman Bastards um, so far. But uh, they're all really, really good. So, you know, that's, that's a uh, strongest of the three is a very high, uh, very high praise for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat as well. Um, I really like all three of them, but this is probably still my favorite. Yeah, the first was rated the highest of the three on every uh, on every board that I was researching on well, yesterday. So because like, okay, I think but part of all... it is because it was it was so fresh mm-hmm. uh, for everyone. It was uh, I, I don't I don't know. I can't speak for Scott on this, but I don't see a lot of. Uh, a lot of the standard kind of heroic fantasy tropes and influence. No, <laughs> the, uh, a lot of a lot of writers you can you can say, oh well, yeah, you know, uh, you can you can see where they got the stuff from. Um, I can see where Scott got some of this stuff from, but it's generally not from science fiction and fantasy writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it. I just went and looked. So this book originally came out in 2006, which makes a lot of sense. That was around when like grim, dark fantasy started getting much more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and so this was kind of right at the beginning of that big wave that Abercrombie and Erickson and Mark, Mark Lawrence and, you know, uh, many of the currently most popular fantasy authors when they all started as well. So it makes sense. Cause this is a, I'm not going to say it's grim dark, but it's a grittier kind of fantasy. Well, it's very much, doesn't, it is very much in the spirit of grim dark. I would say mm-hmm. uh, what I, I don't really like the, the word grim dark um, sure. acts of Cain have been described that way as well. And, and, you know, uh, Heroes Die came out in '97. Yeah. Um, the I think of it more as noir. Um, okay. In which okay. in which all of the characters, even the good guys, are just pursuing their own personal interests. There yeah. is no there. I mean, there is there are supernatural forces, but they are not moral forces. There is no mm-hmm. there's no supernatural force of good supernatural force of evil there right. is there is uh there's power but um whether the power is good yeah. or evil depends yeah. on who's wielding it right the yeah interpretation and application right. is, is key there mm-hmm. yeah 
that I thought that was one of um, the best things. Uh, I'm going to try to not go into spoilers too much uh, for any of our listeners who haven't read the Acts of Keen, but there's a twist with one of the powers in that series that you think you know how it works and where it's aligned in things. And then at the beginning of the fourth book, you find out, depending right. on who is right. using the power, right. things are very different. So, yeah. yeah. That's that's actually what I believe it. I mean, one of the reasons I one of the reasons I got started writing fantasy in the first place was um, I you know I I started I started writing seriously in about in the early eighties and uh, and started writing full time in the nineties and at the time the the genre was completely dominated by David Eddings. David Eddings, oh, and to to a lesser extent, yeah. uh, Stephen Donaldson. Donaldson um, yeah. But Donaldson Donaldson was the more grown up, darker kind of thing. Yeah, the, the one that <laughs> the one that I admire more personally. Um, but uh, yeah, we just finished reading the Gap Cycle on on this show. Oh, I, I have a, is... I have a long theory on the Gap Cycle that um, I could talk to you about, but that's not the subject of this show. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, <laughs> another time. Uh, my my point is that that the stuff that I l really liked when I was growing up was stuff from the from the Weird Tales guys like Fritz Leiber and some of the New Wave guys like Roger Zelazny. Where mm -hmm. oh, um, we covered the last. And I thought it should be possible to write fantasy without supernatural good and supernatural evil. No, no Valar, no Dark Lord. Um, mm -hmm. Just, just people, people with power pursuing their own interests, and that's what I set out to do, and I kind of still am on that, despite my work in Star Wars. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> but, uh, well, but that was one of the things your work in Star Wars did. I, I thought uh, the philosophy of the Force in those books, um, it was much more with, especially with Vergeer and Jason and Traitor, which. Beautiful, but <laughs> thanks. You just like tipped his proverbial hat. Yeah, that's my favorite Star Wars book ever. So, <laughs> um, anyway, we're still yeah. mostly on lock. Is there anything else? Well, that, uh, that, that's that's all I was. What I was really wanted to to say about that was um, that lock. You know, the gentlemen bastards are very much in the in the vein of like Fafford and the Gray Mouser. Um, uh -huh. In fact, they, if you're familiar with those stories, they kind of track on that pretty closely because Grey Mouser is, is the small, uh, smart con man guy and his best friend is a hulking berserker. And uh, there's, there's a, you know, there's, there's an arguable lineage there. And both of them, uh, Locke and John, from the Great Mouser, are mostly interested in living well. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not they're not uh, they're not as involved in what you might call quests and causes. They're mostly involved in trying to organize a comfortable existence for themselves. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's Fritz Lieber, right? Yeah. 
Lighter, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I've never read those, but I'm uh, aware of them. Going on uh, the list. But I'll have to, yeah, I'll have he's to one of, he's one of the toss it on the TV. Was, I mean, he lived until the 90s, but he started writing and his first published story was like 37. He's one mm. of the, the old, the old school weird tales guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, shall we move on to Jean here? Rob? Yeah. Let's talk about Jean. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, he's your favorite character. Would you like to elaborate? Um, well, I guess it's a lot of it has to do with Jean representing some of the virtues that I personally aspire to. That's why I kind of uh, I kind of identify with him. Uh, okay. Because I too was large and slow and uncoordinated as a child. And uh, spent 20 years studying martial arts, studying and teaching martial arts. And so yeah. I, so I, I attached to that, but he's also, you know, John is also an intellectual mm-hmm. and, um, and his loyalty is unbreakable. And that's something that I just, uh, that just that just it it hits me. Um, it hits me right where I live. I mean, that's that's one of the things that uh, that moved me a lot working on Revenge of the Sith was writing about the yeah. breakdown of exactly that kind of relationship. Um, now, mm-hmm. with any luck at all, uh, Locke and John are not going to go through anything that. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, I assume I assume that if it appears that they are going through something that <laughs> catastrophic, it's just part of a con. Yeah, yeah. Now you've got me worried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. With with, with John, the these oh, I was such. A, I am a huge fan of John. I think he's my second favorite character. With all these flashback sequences, all the context we get for him that we don't get for other characters, it's it's hard not to love him. And I well, he really I is a co-leader. You know, it is. Yeah. I mean, Locke is the title character, but Locke and John are really, you know, they they pretty much get they get very close to the same amount of screen time over the course of the three books I've read. So yeah, yeah. Uh, once the rest of the crew is is offed by the gray king um it, it really becomes the the lock and john mm. show mm. yeah and we're gonna see sabatha i assume at some point in the future i haven't seen Sabatha yet so yeah so i, I was actually gonna <laughs> bring that up a, uh, as a character spoiler. point rob to see what you thought about the lack of sabatha you know i feel like two three years ago before we started this podcast drew i would have bitched about that I think I would have bitched about that, but I have enough trust now. I, and I know I have enough experience now to have the trust in Scott Lynch that it doesn't bother me in the slightest. Because I feel like he kept in this book what we, what, what he needed to get across in this book. And Sabatha to me is this nebulous well of awesome that we're going to get in the future. And so it's kind of like saving the best dish for last. I feel like I'm, I'm I have no problem with it now, but a few years ago, when I was a little less experienced, yeah, I would have. I probably would have bitched about it. I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it goes back to what Matt was saying earlier about how this really is just a collection of snippets of the lives of these people, and the the lack of Sabatha is a great indicator of how much more of their lives we still have to learn yeah. about. Yeah, I agree yeah. completely. 
Yeah, and it still with with, with Jean here, like I, I've got I've got several friends who aren't immediate family that like I figure I would put myself at serious risk for. I've got two friends in particular who I wouldn't even hesitate before putting my life on the line for. Drew, I think you're one of them. I love <laughs> seeing. That, that, that theme come full circle at the end with Locke fighting the Grey King. He's just holding out. He's declaring as his strength fades, I just have to wait. I have to wait until Jean arrives or, or, mm-hmm. or, or something. I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. there. You know, I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again on the Inking Out Loud podcast. Some of my favorite work that authors do with their characters is how they use other characters to describe or, or to showcase them. And this is a perfect example of that here. Mm-hmm. Hearing Locke say that about Jean is, is something about Jean's character that I love. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Well put. Also, Wicked Sisters, I'd like you to meet the Wicked Sisters. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. So damn good. <laughs> so damn good. Goosebumps on both if, my arms there. If there's one thing Scott Lynch nails, it's those one-liners. Oh, yeah. I mean. oh my God. I envy him so much that that's just, hey. yeah. <laughs> nice bird asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 I, I, I still have, you know, a, a mostly tongue in cheek theory that the whole reason he put the flashbacks in, in this book was just to set up that one line <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> with the, you know, if so, if you ever run across a bonds mage, you make sure you mind your sirs and madams and dot your eyes and cross your T's and then it ends. And then the first line, nice bird asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, he uses arsehole, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> that was so good. That was, yeah. Wait, did in your copy of the book, does it say arsehole, Rob? Yeah. Is it not? Oh, it's, it's definitely asshole in mine. Really? It was originally yeah. published in the UK. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The um, if 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 memory serves, and I think it does, uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, Simon Spanton at Glance in those days. I don't I don't remember exactly well, okay. which publisher it was, but um, but yeah, it was it was he was originally picked up by a UK house. I'm I'm almost positive. Uh, Orion. Orion. Orion Publishing Group. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but of course yeah. they would make some well, some it, alterations for an American would, version. Because if you think about it, in the UK, saying asshole would just mean donkey hole. Right. I imagine. Which wouldn't quite resonate, I imagine, with resonate. that same... Although uh, they, that they, same get, they get enough uh, Hollywood <laughs> crap over there that I think they would be hip to the... True, yeah. yeah. That's actually a good but, point, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, do, do we have any other characters in particular that we want to talk about? I just wanted to give a shout out to Caldo and Galdo. I mean, in in the same way that that Jean uh, apparently resonated with you, Matt, Caldo and Galdo really resonated with me. And I I sat down trying to think about why that was. I only managed to come up with one reason, and that's because they are the jack of all trades kind of person, and I am the jack of all trades kind of person myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm good at a lot of things. I'm not great at any of them, and so. These two and the place that they had in the Gentleman Bastards, especially a lot of their banter, that really well, resonated. They are, they are they're... great at giving each other and everyone else shit. <laughs> yes, if, and I like to they, think that's a talent that I have. have if they have <laughs> one particular skill that stands out above above all the rest, I think is is um, they they get off they get off a lot of good lines on each other. Yeah, the friendly jab. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and their deaths hit me. Those deaths hit me oh, every see, bit as was, hard as I was, feel like was really Lynch wanted them to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yep, yep. That, that whole just sequence of of the book was 
blow after blow. Yeah, I knew someone had to die. I knew someone had to die. I figured it was going to be bug so that it would give the crew, you know, that chance to be really torn up and hard on themselves for it. But then once we saw the corpses. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's going to be, I guess bug lives, but. Ten pages nope. later, or whatever. <laughs> oh no, I guess not. I guess I, oh, I, I was assumed too much again on that one. But I love that Bug got that extra tip of respect from Locke at the end when Locke says his true name with a killing stroke against the Great King. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so good, so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, do you have any uh, miscellaneous points, Rob or Matt, before we head into favorite scenes? Uh, I just want to give a shout out to my man Horza, the apothecary or black apothecary, whatever whatever his his job title is. Dude's hilarious. Oh, the the pawn shop guy. Oh, was it the pawn shop? Oh, it's right because they were selling items. What am I saying? He wasn't an yeah, apothecary. Yeah. It's right. <laughs> that that line. This crap is welcome as a pile of seven dog dicks. You know. <laughs> I oh, you know what? I just realized another point that I wanted to bring up the audiobook. I, I did say earlier that I got both the audiobook and I got the, the electronic from my e-reader. I got both versions. I would highly recommend both. The audiobook delivery is so fantastic. Uh, my version was narrated by Michael Page. I figure he's probably uh, the narrator for a lot, of, a lot of those who have this audiobook. This guy is so good at his delivery. There were several times when I was reading the book in the hours before bed. I'm like, okay, I can feel myself starting to nod off, but I still want to get another chapter in. So I switch to the audiobook and I fade off as I'm listening to the audiobook. And this damn audiobook narrator wouldn't let me sleep because every <laughs> two or three minutes I was cracking up and then I'd wake myself <laughs> up laughing. It's, I just, you have to listen to the audiobook for anybody who's got the extra credit. You're thinking about it, you're on the fence, check it out. It's, it's so wonderfully done. Nice. Very so, nice. Yeah. And that's, Pretty much the only miscellaneous point that I have. I'm ready to head into our favorite scenes. Matt, anything? Uh, uh, I had one miscellaneous point. Oh, um, go ahead, Drew. I noted at one point uh, early on, Jean calls Locke his nibs. And nibs? I had only ever heard that expression in one place before, and that was in Glenn Cook's Garrett P.I. books. Uh, and I was like, is this a, a Glenn Cook shout out? And, and I Googled it and apparently it's a, a pretty common phrase. Very, very common phrase yeah. for the Lord of the Manor. Yeah. Yeah. Like Bell- a, a, nibs? a self-important. N-I-B-S. His nibs. Oh, exactly how it sounds. Yeah. Like the candy. I don't know if you guys have that candy in the United States, but here in Canada, we have nibs that are actually, it's a candy. No, I don't think I've ever heard of those. Wow. Cool. All right. Any yeah, that, that was points? all I had. Yeah, so, um, yeah, do we want to talk about some favorite scenes? Yeah. Well, you know sure. mine. Yeah, um, yeah. I, yeah. I will also uh, point out that the end of that scene where Jean is is watching the fencing class and then he goes in um, is, right. Is, right. is absolutely brilliant. And as a former... I don't know what you would call it. Semi-pro martial artist. It's so it's so completely accurate when the the fencing master says says, "Oh, those those guys, they're just learning to fence. You're going to learn to yeah. kill people with a sword." Yeah, yeah. And there's a distinction there a, to be had. A, a, a profound distinction. Yeah. And uh, I and I just thought it was I thought it was really cool it was what a great um punchline to end that whole scene on 
yeah, yeah. to set the stage for seeds mm-hmm. to come. Oh yeah. Yeah, it lends it such a gravity, like as as if the elder glass flowers didn't already impress upon you the, the kind of the seriousness of this environment. Right. You end with that line, and you're like, "Ooh, yeah. it's hardcore. <laughs> yeah. It's really hardcore. Yeah. Really good." Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Rob, what about you? Well, we already talked about one of my favorite scenes, and that was the nice bird arsehole. I mean, especially with the flashback <laughs> that we got before it leading into it. But um, one that I want to definitely give a shout out to was John Tannen versus the Barangius, a uh, Barangius twins. Oh yeah. You know, yes. we, we did just allude to this earlier too with the nice, uh, or sorry, Wicked Sisters like you to meet the Wicked Sisters. But I was fully aware in this moment that I was expecting Jean Tannen to win. But I was, and this is key, I was still more afraid for him than I had been for any other main character than I, that I've liked in months, maybe years of doing this podcast every week. Like, again, I just, in this well, moment, I already seen, remembering. You've already seen that Scott is ruthless with his characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kept remembering the subversion of my expectation about Nazca mm-hmm. earlier. In, like, in, in like, this small part of me was just so insistent during this scene when I was reading it that I don't take Jean Tannen's, you know, triumph for granted. And so that right there made this scene far more tense than I think it would have other been mm-hmm. otherwise been. Yeah, and and he does such a good job earlier in the book uh, building up the Barangia sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, their their competence, their lethality, and and their um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, yeah, like the yeah. fact that they're they're making a living off of a, a pretty horrible gladiatorial, you know, uh, pastime, uh, and they clearly just enjoy mm-hmm. it, and we yeah. see them present during the torture of of some of the full crowns, and they they're totally fine with it. You know, they, they're not even as disturbed as like Nazca or Locke or, you know, they're just like, Oh yeah. Oh, we're just going to go get this guy down and toss him to a shark, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a lot of really good build up for that scene. And that was one of my favorite scenes as well. The, the wicked sisters versus the wicked sisters. But yeah. my favorite scene was when Locke first meets uh, Barsavi and Nazca when he goes into uh, kind of swear fealty and oh, as a child. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, and and Nazca is this <laughs> little terror, and uh, yeah. with it with her like steel toe boots, trying to kick people's shins and stuff, and then and then Barsavi impresses upon her not only the need for strength but the need for grace, and how Locke is being gracious, and and yeah, you, if you're going to be uh, the Lord of the Underworld or the Lady of the Underworld, you need strong, threatening people, but you also need gracious people. I loved that scene. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, my favorite of all the scenes that we had here, I needed to give this one a shout out. This is chapter 13. This entire mm-hmm. sequence, after the gentleman bastards have lost everything, and Locke has to lie and scheme his way up, higher and higher, character to character, to get the appropriate outfit. Like, oh, yes! The, Miragios. Yes, the <laughs> manner in which we as a reader, we're, we're left completely in the dark by Scott Lynch here, just to watch everything unfold. It was so good. Leaving these realizations to us, rather than taking the time to explain what Locke was doing, such a great choice. Mm-hmm. Such a great choice. I imagine many readers get the chance to pick up on what's happening here at various times at their own pace when when you as a reader put it together and so i feel like the reaction every time is going to be that much more organic mm-hmm. you know mine was my experience with this scene is so memorable i i remember 
damn near actually physically fist pumping when Locke even returned to bust out Benjavir, to hauling him out like by his ear. Like it was just so much fun from beginning mm-hmm. to end. So this that was my number one favorite scene in this book. Okay, nice. Uh, and I just realized one more thing before we go into the final draft. We didn't talk about the epigraphs. Oh. Uh, we're really used to discussing a certain type of epigraphs on, on this podcast because we cover so much Brandon Sanderson, right. uh, where he uses in-universe lore and, and conversations and things to build background mysteries and build his meta narrative. Here, these are just quotes from real-world uh, texts. I mean, we have like Shakespeare is in here. We've got uh, Williams. Yeah, um, actually, a couple from from Shakespeare, from King Henry the Sixth. Um, we got Rousseau, like, uh, and and he just kind of uses them to set the the tone for the part coming ahead. Like, I, I love part four is titled "Desperate Improvisation," and the epigraph is "I pitch like my hair's on fire." You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I just I, I needed to mention that before I forgot. Uh, cool. But yeah, so uh, let's let's head on into the final draft. Rob, what have you been drinking? Well, it's a little early in the day, and obviously I know that hasn't stopped me in the past from you know indulging <laughs> in, a, in a few alcoholic beverages. But for today, all I had was a single Tim Hortons brand French vanilla cappuccino brew, and the reason. I explained this to, to to both of you two as soon as we started. I'll just tell everybody who's listening. The reason I was a minute late today to start this was because I was shaking this French vanilla cream in the kitchen and the lid wasn't secured on properly. And so there is still, as we speak, a there's just still French vanilla cream all over the kitchen upstairs that I'm going to have to go clean after this. But the coffee was delicious. I'm all caffeinated. I am prone to rambling as I normally am when I've had too much caffeine. That's what I've been sipping on, a nice warm French vanilla cappuccino. Yeah, very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Uh, Matt, what about you? Have you been drinking Just anything? Just I, I unfortunately had oh. to give up alcohol earlier this year, so... Oh, okay. Yeah. So life sucks. But... Uh, yeah. But <laughs> well, I, yeah, I was... Bad. Yeah, I was I was a, quite a heavy drinker, for especially for a lot of these podcast episodes, too, and I stopped about... Three, four months ago, about four months ago now. And I've just started slowly easing back into it again. But yeah, I know exactly... Yeah, I went three months completely sober, and it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough. Yeah. Um, well, I I am drinking a beer. Uh, I have to maintain my streak here. Oh yeah. Hundred hundred and thirty five episodes and counting of a of a thematically appropriate beer. Good. Uh, I'm drinking right. a a sour ale brewed with cranberry and grapefruit from Black Project Spontaneous and Wild Ales in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I don't know if this has an ABV on it. It does not have an ABV, but it's pretty good. Um, it, it's definitely pretty acidic. Uh, the grapefruit, I think, takes more of the center stage, which is nice. I'm a big grapefruit fan. But this one goes out to the falconer and his uh, his familiar. It is called Hawk Screech. Oh, nice. Very, very nice. Very nice. Very good. <laughs> yeah. This is one of my favorite things about doing these episodes, finding a, finding a good beer for the... <laughs> Oh, yeah. For the show. Oh, yeah. Matt, I um, figured you'd get a real kick out of some of the, the, the brews that Drew brought on for the Acts of Cain. Oh, yeah. Brew, I, I had really a beer called it. Oil Man uh, for Wraith oh, okay. at the end of Blade of Tai Shell. Um, uh, in fact, I had a beer called Black Knife or Dark Knife. Dark Knife. Uh, cool. Yeah. Um, man, I, I don't remember. It's Those were like episodes, what, like 
14 through 18, I think, yeah, or yeah. 14 if, through 21. If, yeah, this is years and years ago. But if you really wanted point. to be appropriate, you should have been drinking scotch. Uh, I did. For the last did, episode, yeah. Matt, I brought in a scotch because, again, I was, I was a heavy drinker back then. And my favorite brew, I brought on my favorite scotch when we got the revelation. Like, you, you've been... You mean to tell me you've been brewing scotch this whole time? <laughs> independently discovered scotch? Yeah, independently discovering scotch. I actually brought on a scotch for that episode. I did. It's a nice Glenfiddich. Yeah. Well, well Glenfiddich yeah. is fine, but it's not Laphroaig. And no. Okay. Laphroaig is Kane's favorite, yeah. and uh, and my, because it's my favorite. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, naturally, naturally. That's that. That's the kind of scotch where you can you can still taste the dinosaurs decomposing in the bottom that's of the bottle. Correct. You know, if you, yeah. yeah. For, <laughs> for uh, I have a little speech on Lafroig because I, I used to be a bartender mm. and uh, I I oh, was yeah? the uh, I was the spirits guy in a in a high end restaurant and mm. Uh, mm. the the thing about Lafroig is that that it's the westernmost distillery in Scotland. The 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 right. cliffs on Isla, where the mm-hmm. where the the uh, distillery is is built, um, and where they harvest the peat to you know uh, make their magic, um, is literally the northern terminus of the Gulf Stream. And oh, interesting! So the the oh. peat that they smoke the barley with and malt the barley with um, has has uh, seaweed for lack of a better term that from the caribbean in it there are if you if you really if you really pay attention to the to the uh the whole nose and the the whole experience you can taste you can taste like citrus fruit and melon and and Uh and kelp and fish and a little bit of the brininess it's it's very it's very briny it's very it's uh the the one I like the best is super rough on the tongue, but, but you know I like <laughs> I, I like whiskeys that are a little fierce. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm right there with you, man. Heck yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. So I think this uh, brings us to the end of our coverage of the lies of Locke Lamora. This yeah. has been uh, what did we say? Episode one thirty five. One three five of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we'll be heading back into the Dresden Files for uh, Deadbeat. As always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on coffee, ko-fi.com slash inkingoutloud. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our very special guest. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. This has been a blast. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, Hopefully, we'll be able to get you on again at some point, maybe to cover Red Seas Under Red Skies. Fair enough. I would do it. Ooh. Yeah, I think, uh, in fact, uh, unless I'm mistaken, that book is dedicated to you, yes, isn't it? Is. it? Which I did not even know about. Scott didn't even mention it to me. So it wasn't until I actually really? bought a copy and <laughs> opened it up. And I was, and I, I, I just wrote him an email. I was like, I was like dude, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I would understand. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. I had no idea. Oh. <laughs> That's that's amazing. Awesome. Well, uh, well, yeah. So everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.